Encore episode, how financial toxicity wrecks havoc on value-based payment success. Today, I speak with Mark Fendrick, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I wanted to remind everyone about this show from last year because it's becoming increasingly relevant. We have this weird thing going on where everybody seems to be talking about physician incentives and payments and financial implications, but so often disregards patient incentives and payments and financial implications. Consider that we're at a place in the time-space continuum where it is inarguable that financial toxicity has become clinical toxicity. Patients are increasingly in huge numbers, abandoning care, splitting pills, doing all kinds of things to save money that are clinically toxic. And these are patients with, in air quotes, good insurance that we are talking about here. So here's a role play. Provider organization is actually paying doctors for outcomes. In wanders a patient with a huge deductible. Doc says, wow, patient, so important that you take your insulin or med as directed or get a follow-up on that scary colonoscopy finding. Patient says, sorry, doc, can't afford it. And the doc gets dinged because the patient outcomes are avoidably poor. That's what this show with Dr. Mark Fendrick digs into. Aligning patient incentives, a.k.a. benefit designs, etc., with value-based payments on the provider side. And with that, here's your encore. And here I thought I knew a lot about value-based care. Today I am speaking with Mark Fendrick, MD, who is the director over at the University of Michigan Center for Value-Based Insurance Design. This conversation is for those of you who already know pretty much about value-based care concepts. If you do not, I'd go back and listen to, say, Encore episode 206 with Ashok Subramanian before this one. Dr. Fendrick talks today about what it takes for value-based care to happen in the real world. No kidding. It's about making sure that reimbursement is aligned with good things. No great surprise there. But two light bulb moments I had in this conversation with Dr. Fendrick today. Number one. At the beginning of the year, how many doctors and nurses inspired to do the right thing have told their patients with diabetes, say, to go get an eye exam to check for diabetic retinopathy? No one would disagree that this is definitely a good idea. Diabetic retinopathy causes blindness. But here's the reality of that conversation. Doc says, go get an eye exam. And patient says, I can't. My deductible is huge and I can't afford it. So the patient doesn't get the follow-up care and winds up in the hospital or blind. And the doctor gets dinged on his or her quality scores. Suboptimal outcomes all around, I'd say. This also happens on the pharmacy side of the equation, but I think a lot of us are a little bit more familiar with that scenario. You know, like type 1 diabetics who can't afford to pick up their insulin because of a Medicare Part D or commercial deductible that they haven't met yet. I just never really connected the dots back to the provider getting black marks because their patient has a benefit design that's not aligned with the quality measures. Here's a number two thing. In a majority of benefit signs, consumer price sharing is based not on the value of the service, but on how expensive the service just happens to be. Wow. So we're trying to get our plan members to be consumers and use the power of their wallets to make good healthcare choices. And what we're really doing is driving them towards cheap things or no care 
and discouraging them from indulging, and I say that sarcastically, in expensive things. But the expensive things might be the high-value care, and the relatively cheap things might be, you know, crap that's fully unnecessary or harmful and over a whole population adds up to a lot of zeros. Healthcare is not like a consumer market where the expensive things are usually a better version of the cheap things. You know, for all you economists out there, you don't want the demand curve to be elastic when what's cheap and what's expensive has no correlation to quality or necessity. You know, nobody should be super flabbergasted when a $35 cure-all supplement peddled on YouTube makes some random influencer a millionaire. Like, that's how supply and demand works. Much to ponder in this episode. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Mark Fendrick, MD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. So happy to be here. I'm going to ask you a very incendiary question. Is back surgery high-value care? I like to tell people that my three favorite high-value services are colonoscopy, coronary stents, and back surgery. I also tell any audience that would listen, my three favorite low-value services are colonoscopy, coronary stents, and back surgery. So, for instance, someone who has been so interested in the prevention of colorectal cancer for so many years and the person who actually coined the term the Katie Couric effect, I beg patients between the ages of 50 and 75 to be screened for colorectal cancer. But there are a large number of low-risk patients under the age of 40 and some people with limited life expectancies over the age of 85 who continue to be screened. So we can look at colorectal cancer screening and colonoscopy specifically as an extraordinarily high-value service in many situations, but low-value care and potentially harmful in others. This is where I think it gets complicated because if it's not black and white, these decisions as you've just articulated so well, that it's really full of nuance and it's kind of patient by patient, then, you know, really, how is anybody making determinations relative to like what is high value or high quality care? I think we have the evidence and the technology. The practice of medicine in the 30 years I've been doing it, it's just remarkable the advances we've had. And I like to say precision medicine, where we're making decisions not only based on an individual patient, but sometimes on the basis of their genome, needs to be followed up with precision payment and precision benefit design. When I talk about my clinical practice, it's Star Wars medicine. When I talk about how we are able to deliver these services to our patients, I call it Flintstones delivery. We have to move from the sledgehammer to the scalpel, not just in clinical practice, but how we actually deliver care. And there are systems in place, often deterrence, not encouraging type of implementations, that try to prevent me and other clinicians from doing things through prior authorizations or other types of benefit design. There's no reason that we can't move from the current kind of stodgy, stale, non-fluid benefit designs to one that's quite dynamic, where you could use information based on that individual patient and make a decision regarding how you are paid and what the benefits might be. And I think a good example might be ophthalmologic eye exams. A diabetic patient who we all know in every quality metric ever published, eye exams for diabetics at the very top of the list. The way that it seems like quality measures are being put into place, and to some extent, exactly like you say, benefit designs and certainly prior auths, 
it's kind of this, okay, we're going to take this whole population and say that, I mean, and maybe there's some minor nuance there, like anyone under the age of 45 or over the age of 45, but it's very much, okay, everybody, everyone needs this service or everyone doesn't need this service. It's, It's kind of this blanket statement that crosses the population for whatever that service is. And kind of what you're saying is instead of making it you know, a horizontal blanket statement, it really should be more vertical in the sense that it should be precision to that individual. So what we should be kind of taking a look at is what is the genome or the precision medicine that this particular patient needs and then ensure whatever services are delivered are delivered in that kind of vertical column. I'd love you to come on the road with me, Stacy. So that is a very articulate way of what we've been trying to say for so, so long. One of the major accomplishments of value-based insurance design is a very small but popular part of the Affordable Care Act that mandates that all non-grandfathered health plans and self-insured employers have to cover a significant set of preventive services at no cost to patients. The good news about this is that many, if not all, of these recommendations from the United States Preventive Services Task Force are nuanced. A more recent one, which is quite interesting and and, uh, was very pleased to be peripherally involved, is A year and a half ago, the task force made a recommendation regarding BRCA testing to make it free for very small segment of very high-risk women. But they also noted that they gave the same test a D rating, which is do not do, to all other women. So here is a very fine example where health plans get to say for you, and you have to put in a lot of clinical information that you typically cannot find from claims, you get the test at no charge to you but someone else who falls outside of that specifically defined band, it's recommended not only should you not get it, it's deemed to be harmful if you do. So the Preventative Task Force, is that the correct name of this task force? United States Preventive Services Task Force. They make this recommendation about, let's just keep on the bracket testing case study. Does that actually trickle down to patients? I mean, someone on high, you know, made this statement. Absolutely. I know that the Affordable Care Act remains somewhat controversial, but certainly less so. So the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is a non-governmental agency that's been around for decades. But it wasn't until the ACA was passed and the regulations around Section 2713 were written that turned the task force recommendations, which were just out there in the universe for people to make decisions on their own, to become a federal policy mandate. We now know over 150 million Americans have received enhanced benefits on the basis of this single part of the ACA. And although there were many aspects of the law that people don't like, free preventive services has always polled in the top three most popular aspects of the law. And it was actually preserved in those days of repeal and replace. You know, the pushback always is for preventative services. You always hear this. Well, you know, it's been shown multiple times that preventative services don't actually reduce the cost of care. Like you spend so much on preventative services that if you actually do the math, the downstream math, that you're not saving any money. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think this is one of the most important points I've been trying to make often to deaf ears for 25 years. Uh, Whether it be preventive care or even the management of chronic diseases, almost all of the services I beg my patients to do, almost all of the services that we recommend to have reduced cost sharing or to be made free do not save money. They are cost effective. They are a valuable type of spending. It is extraordinarily rare that you see any service save live and save dollars. 
One of the best examples and a huge accomplishments for, for us in the VBID world was uh, Section 2713 of the ACA was the policy vehicle that was amended to mandate that coronavirus or COVID-19 vaccine be made available to almost all Americans at no cost. I'm not sure that uh, most academics who are looking at the cost effectiveness of the vaccine will find it to be net cost saving. But I think all of us agree, given the stakes are so high, that this is a very valuable intervention and removing one of the key barriers that patients often use to say that why they don't get the care they need, high out-of-pocket costs, have been effectively eliminated. It's just the cost is one metric. You know, you always, everyone talks about the triple aim and cost is but one corner. So what I'm understanding you say is that, okay, the cost may be cost neutral, but the quality and the patient satisfaction go up markedly. And that's what we should be looking at. Right. So I didn't go to medical school to learn how to save people money. I have become much less naive to understand that lowering healthcare costs in this country is a top policy priority. I would like to think, since you mentioned the triple aim and your listeners know it, improve quality of care, which motivates me as a clinician, enhanced patient satisfaction, which is absolutely critical. And the third is to lower healthcare costs. And if we are to constrain healthcare costs in the U.S. and continue to make accessible the amazing innovations that are improving individual and population health, we as a country must have the courage to finally take on the substantial amount of healthcare spending in the U.S. that goes to low-value services. We're spending billions on care that's, that's not making Americans healthier and in some situations actually causing harm. We could take those savings from reducing those low-value services and hopefully provide headroom to allow more access and more affordability for those services that we know make Americans healthier but uh, that are currently underused. In a pursuit to remain cost neutral, we can certainly do it by not doing the things that we should be doing and then using those recovered dollars to pay for more things that we should be doing. Right, so more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. The bottom line is, as a primary care provider, I am benchmarked. And in many situations, my salary depends on how I perform regarding high value services. I find it so frustrating that for those exact same services that I am benchmarked on and often get a bonus for, my patients don't have easy access to, which is why deductibles, the bluntest of all instruments that patients face, tend to be a area that I've been trying to fix for decades. Yeah, so let's go back to the eye exams that you brought up at the top of this conversation because I think this is a great case study of what you're talking about right now. So as you mentioned earlier, everybody knows that it's super important for patients with diabetes to get eye exams. And yet, you know, patient shows up in clinic in January. What happens? For millions of Americans with chronic conditions, there is real stress about whether things are happening in December or happening in January because the deductible on your health plan turns over every January 1st. So it shouldn't surprise you that not only for diabetic eye exams, but the patients I see early in the year will tell me that they don't have the money to pay full price for their insulin. And there's always a story that I am quoted in in January talking about how a patient who is doing fine at the end of the year particularly after the tough year of 2020 financially for so many Americans because of the pandemic, are now in real dire straits because they need essential services that are never overused, but are confronted with a plan deductible, which makes it impossible for them to get the care they need. So we've had some successes in convincing 
uh, the federal government as well as private payers to expand pre-deductible coverage, meaning cover things that are deductible exempt in their plans. But this is going to be a major initiative for us as we come out of the pandemic and think about how we can make things better regarding benefit design and payment moving forward. If you're a physician in January and you tell your patient, oh, look, I see that it's time for you to go get an eye exam patient with diabetes. And the patient looks at you and says, I can't afford it. Well, I'll tell you a very poignant example. It's about five years ago now that a patient of mine came into the office and uh, in January, I knew her financial situation. I knew it was very difficult for her just to cover the co-payment for my visit. So we went over her diabetic goals and, and she said, you know, Dr. Fendrick, my medications aren't covered pre-deductible. My eye exam is not covered pre-deductible. My hemoglobin A1C, which is a blood test, which is also a quality metric, is not pre-deductible. She said, it's going to be very difficult for me to do any, but certainly not all of those services. Stacy, to make things even worse, at the end of the visit, she said to me, good to see you. I'll either see you at my next visit or when I'm in the hospital. Yikes. Yikes is right. You can't make this stuff up. To even make that even worse, if that's even possible, you just got dings on your quality score because your patient didn't get follow-up care. Exactly. You know, one of the maybe silly things, I, I'm known on Capitol Hill in Washington as the peanut butter and jelly person, and I'll tell you why. And, you know, my goal of uh, the revised value-based healthcare Star Wars delivery system is such that when a patient and their clinician agree that a service is going to improve their health and improve their satisfaction, the patient should be able to get that easily and the clinician should be paid generously for that service. So that is the ultimate goal. So peanut butter are reforms to pay clinicians not based on what they do, but how they impact patients. Jelly is how we incentivize patients to do the right thing. Again, you mentioned a quality payment initiative that will pay me, a clinician, more to get my patients to diabetic eye exams, a peanut butter example, will go nowhere unless my patient is aligned in terms of her benefit design to get that service. So that's why we chose peanut butter and jelly because my students told me it was the best example of the sum being greater than the individual parts. <laughs> there are some already empirical studies to show in rare circumstances, my dream of alignment of providers and patients. It should come as no surprise to you or any of your listeners that when patients and providers are aligned, they do much better than if you just incentivize one constituent or another. And is this what you mean? You've mentioned the term pre-deductible several times. Is this an example of that? And do you want to just explain what you mean there? Sure. It might be self-evident, but... No, 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 it's not self-evident. In almost all health plans, except for one type, HSA, health savings account, qualified high deductible health plans, the plan sponsor can determine certain services could be deductible exempt, meaning you don't have to pay full price. You'll just pay what you would pay if you met your deductible or a typical person without a deductible would pay, a co-payment or a co-insurance. And we have lots of examples of firms that have looked very carefully at their benefit design and have made selected classes of drugs and other services, in many situations, pre-deductible. And in other situations, not only pre-deductible, but made them no cost or lower cost than other services to their constituents. A really good example of this and showing every once in a while in the state of crazy federal policy and politics, a good idea could break through. Last year, uh, the Trump administration launched what was called the Senior Savings Plan Model in enhanced Part D plans. It was mandated that pocket costs for insulin would be lowered substantially, and there would actually be a cap on what these plans could apply to patients for that drug. Now, 
We all know this is just one drug in one specific situation, but I'd like to believe that once the dam is cracked, that people say, oh, insulin should not have high cost sharing. I am hopeful that the idea of understanding that this service is really good and patients should not have to pay a lot will become much more pervasive. And as you said earlier, Stacy, we could use the reduction in coverage for those low value services to pay for these services dollar for dollar a benefit design that we call VBIDX. What I'm understanding, and I'm going to ask you about VBIDX in a, in a sec, but so what I'm understanding you say is that there's kind of like three buckets of, of potential services that patients might need or not need, as the case may be. One of those buckets is absolutely essential. The other middle bucket is it's nuance, like the things that you're talking about, back surgery, colonoscopy. And then the, the last bucket is no not today, not tomorrow, pretty much not ever. I don't like those buckets because they say that nothing is ever always high value. Insulin is as close as you could get because I don't know anyone who wants to take a drug that won't help you unless you have diabetes. I'd like to say that um, you look at these services that are in most situations are deemed to be high value. And those are the ones that should be pre-deductible? I would say to your listeners on the payer side, you know that diabetics should get eye exams and shouldn't have barriers. And then they'll say back to me, which I find so frustrating is, oh, my health plan or plan sponsor tells me they don't know who my diabetic patients are. And it would be too hard to say, oh, the diabetic patients get this plan design for eye exams or medications and the non-diabetics get it for others. We have done this in thousands of plans and self-insured employers. I know it can be done. It's just inertia that's really, really hard to overcome. That first bucket then of services that are, they're still nuanced, but they are always high value for the patients that they're appropriate for. I'll give you a good example. Primary care visits, particularly in the policy discussion, small p in the real world and capital P on uh, Capitol Hill. There are a lot of benefit designs and a lot of employers and plans that have no cost sharing for primary care visits. And like your very first question to me, are primary care visits high value, even though I'm a primary care provider? The answer is it depends. There are some visits that are absolutely indicated largely because the evidence would suggest that I need to do something for my patient or the patient has a particular need. But the idea that patients would come in every six months or every year without a complaint or without a clinical need, that would be a low value care visit. Thus that my own professional society, the Society of General Internal Medicine, put you know, routine visits without clinical need on their low value care list in the Choosing Wisely initiative. How does a plan sponsor know, or what would your recommendation be relative to what goes in the pre-deductible category? Please look at the other side of your peanut butter sandwich. Look at the peanut butter side and look at those metrics that you have already determined that you are going to reward your providers for doing more of. And the good news again, Stacey, is almost every plan now has some quality metrics for which they measure their providers to identify high-performing providers and high-performing networks. Those services makes complete common sense, should be easy, not hard for patients to do because you can imagine how the quality metrics are not being optimized because the patients are being penalized as opposed to be rewarded for doing the services they should be doing. So reward both patients and providers for the high value services, 
hopefully penalize those same providers and patients for low-value care services. Call in your favorite actuary and do the math, and you could come up with a plan design that I think everyone would be happy with. That is actually pretty ridiculous now that you put it in such stark terms that you're trying to get physicians to do certain things, but yet you're disincenting the patients to do those exact same things. I'm going to pile on to you because you're so clinically sophisticated. So one of the areas which is really nuanced, which I don't like personally, but is often on a low value care list, is using antibiotics in the setting of an upper respiratory tract infection, a very, very common situation. Patients don't know when they wake up feeling like crap, whether they have a bacterial infection or a viral infection. And I don't want to discourage patients from either having a telemedicine call with me or coming in to let me know that they're feeling unwell because they don't wake up and look in the mirror and see virus or bacteria. That's my job. That's why we train so long to make that determination. But physicians don't make any money not prescribing anything to people who don't need anything, like those folks who need to be sent out with a prescription that says, make your grandmother's chicken soup and just take it easy till the common cold goes away. If we could somehow figure out ways to reward clinicians more for not prescribing antibiotics in that circumstance, not ordering vitamin D testing on people who don't need it, I think we could slowly get to where you and your listeners want to be. I mean, in the the antibiotics, inappropriate antibiotics, I'm not sure what the correct term is for prescribing antibiotics when patients don't need them. That's an often cited, even more sticky situation because then the patient walks out without antibiotics and then writes a nasty review and then the doctor's patient satisfaction scores go down. So that's an area very near and dear to close to my heart. I like to say to people, you know, I'm a member of Antibiotics Anonymous. You know, I've trained hundreds of young clinicians about how you could satisfy patients by just telling them what your clinical knowledge is and recommending an intervention that's going to treat their predominant symptom and not expose them to unnecessary antibiotics. And we have been very successful in reducing unwarranted antibiotic use, but uh, it's not an area that, that is going to become pervasive because there's not a lot of incentives, I think, for busy clinicians who want to keep their patients satisfied. And it's so much easier to write a cefakilamol for a patient who's demanding antibiotics than spending the five minutes and really explaining that antibiotics don't work for viruses and actually make the situation worse in some situations. Let's talk about VBID, which is the value-based insurance design thinking that you are working on. What's kind of like the core pillars of that, which are going to address all of the things that we just talked about, or that's the intention? In substantial majority of benefit designs, consumer cost sharing is set on the price of the service and not the clinical value. We already talked about deductibles, which is the bluntest of instruments, but even when you meet your deductible, patients with insurance, whether it be generous insurance or not generous insurance, pay most out-of-pocket for services that are expensive, and they pay the least out-of-pocket for the services that are low cost. And while there are some low-cost services that are high value, and some very expensive services that are low value. In doing this for over 25 years, there's no real correlation between the cost of service and the clinical benefit of the service. So instead, we are arguing now, what if we set consumer cost sharing on the clinical value, such that the things that we, my patient and I, deem most important would be low cost? And in my opinion, actually, sometimes should go beyond free and people should actually be paid to do. And those services that we know should not be done, 
but are either demanded by patients or felt to be worthwhile by clinicians are A, not paid for, but patients have to pay a lot more money for their own services. I'm libertarian enough that if people want to spend their own money on things that might be of risk to them, people do what they jump out of airplanes and they climb you know, rock columns all the time. That's fine with me. I just do not want to have public funds, particularly when we're denying patients care that we know works. I don't want to see those funds in an insurance plan going systematically to services that we know are not making people any healthier, and in some situations actually causing harm. So we say high value services should be low cost share, low value services should be high cost share. When you first started talking, I was thinking that you were going to wind up as almost a counterpoint to consumerism. But then as you continued, one of the things that became eminently clear is that this is actually enables actual consumerism. It actually enables consumers to actually make decent decisions based on healthcare value, as opposed to, as you put it, you know, just simply the price of the thing and the, you know, it's not like the really expensive, something that's absolutely necessary is the equivalent of the Gucci handbag and the cheap thing is the Walmart handbag. Like it doesn't work that way. Imagine that you would come into my office and we would agree that, which is now the case, if you're over 40, you should get a mammogram. We think that the evidence is strong and say, by the way, we and your payer think that this evidence is so strong that you're going to get this for free. Imagine if I said, oh, you have high blood pressure. You know, my screening you for high blood pressure is free. But the problem is that sometimes people can't afford the treatment that comes after screening. I have thousands of messages over the past 10 years saying, Dr. Fendrick, thank you for the free screening for blank. I now can't afford my chemotherapy and surgery and have to foreclose on my home. Thank you so much for making this genetic test available to me at no cost. I have to have a Kickstarter campaign to be able to get the care we need. So again, my goal is not just individual services, it is sequences of care over the course of the clinical condition. Ultimately, if we can save enough money through the reduction of low value services, we may see a change to allow some of these promising benefit ideas to actually come to fruition. What do providers think about this? You know, your average provider, because, you know, in some cases, they're making a whole lot of money from these low value, expensive services. So first of all, I want to make really clear, I do not think that there are clinicians out there who are doing services that they know are harmful just because they can make money. I think the culture of medicine and the incentives in place are pretty malaligned. Uh, one of my favorite quotes comes from a book called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. It's difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. So the performance of coronary stenting in the setting of stable angina, the performance of knee arthroscopy in the setting of five controlled trials that say that it's no better than physical therapy, the performance of pre-op testing in patients undergoing low-risk surgery like cataracts and hernia repairs, there is an incentive to continue to do these services. So much so, Stacy, that I learned that for a cataract surgery in many American hospitals, more money is made on the ancillary testing than on the cataract surgery themselves. We have incentives that are run amok. And until we do something like put a bundled price on things like cataract surgery or delivery of babies, hopefully we'll see the money going to where it should be going for this, those who provide the services of high value. 
and there'll be no further incentives to do things just because we can, and it leads to a lot of revenue coming in. So fixing the peanut butter. I think that coming out of COVID-19, we have this incredible opportunity to ramp up payment for those services that we deem to be high value. But importantly, I'm going to hold you accountable for not doing the services that you were doing beforehand that weren't. So for another example, coronary stenting I mentioned, putting a stent into a heart of someone having a heart attack is one of the most valuable things we have in modern medicine. It is currently underused. I think that one way to increase their utilization is to pay more to cardiologists and health systems for doing stents in that situation. However, putting stents in in patients who are not clinically indicated also goes on. So you could see, Stacey, I hope that the flow of funds should go to the same group of people to more services that are high value and less of low value. Dr. Robert Pearl was on the podcast earlier and he talked quite a bit about exactly like you just said with Upton Sinclair quote that it's very insidious the impact of financials on what we do, even if we don't necessarily realize what's going on there. So do you feel like then that changing the incentive structure, is that the centerpiece of any initiative to help providers actually make decisions which are toward high value care and stop doing the low value care? Or is there more on the table than that? No, it's all about incentives. Uh, you know, the center of the VBID bingo card is a quote from my mother who said, I can't believe you had to spend a million dollars to show that if you make people pay more for something, they'll buy less of it. So this is my work on cost sharing deductibles. The same holds true for the, uh, the other way around. So I do believe that removal of the abomination of fee-for-service on the peanut butter side is critical. Moving away from blunt instruments like deductibles to more clinically nuanced benefit designs will help on the jelly side. But ultimately, I think why some people call value-based insurance design as getting a second coming is our willingness to embrace this problem of low-value care. Because many plan sponsors, you know, we're going to have to reverse some of the more generous coverage decisions that we did based on value-based insurance design principles just because we don't have the funding. To which I reply, you do have the funding. You just have to have the courage. Where can people go to learn more about your work and also what's going on at the Value-Based Insurance Design Center? Again, thanks so much for having me. You know we could go on forever, but I'm going to try to behave as I'm capitated <laughs> as opposed to fee-for-service. So almost all of the things we talked about, including initiatives that we did not talk about, like the Medicare Advantage Value-Based Insurance Design Demonstration or VBIDX, which is this idea of a cost-neutral VBID plan that was promoted by the Trump administration and included in the Federal Register last year can be found at the Center for Value-Based Insurance Design website, vbidcenter.org. And you also have a great newsletter that people can sign up for if they go to that site, correct? Right. That's absolutely free. Mark Fendrick, MD, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you for being relentless and uh, hopefully you can make baby steps to make uh, the American healthcare system a little more rational. Here's to that. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.